0: Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone, welcome to Group Text. You know, Sabrina and I are true crime fanatics, like crazy people. And you know, I am worried that it is becoming a bit of a compulsion, but that's for a later broadcast. We are so excited today to have Derek Donine, the director of the Netflix series "The Heist." Welcome, welcome, Thank welcome!
1: You. Thank um, you so much for having me.
0: Okay, I'm jumping right, right in. Explain what "Heist" is about because it's a true crime anthology series.
1: Yeah, it's you know, it's kinda I've been calling it a serialized anthology because we have six episodes but um three stories and each one is split into two parts. Okay. So it's you know, it's uh what I like to call um, you know, fun true crime with a lot of heart.
2: Fun true crime with a lot fun true crime
1: with a lot of
2: A lot heart. of heart. Yeah. What what does that mean? <laughs>
1: You know, the so the concept of the show is um, real heist stories told by the people who pulled them off. And, uh, you know, like you, I'm also a big fan of the genre. I watch a lot of true crime, but I was starting to get a little fatigued with how dark some of it can get. Uh, m- most of it can get, you know, most of most of them are serial killer stories, murder stories, murder mysteries uh, or sort of about the broken system. Um, and there's a lot of mystery and intrigue. I mean, I, like I said, I really enjoy the show, but we wanted to do something. Uh, I'm sorry, we really enjoy the genre, but we wanted to do something that was just a little bit more fun, you know, that wasn't as violent, where you could kind of root for the bad guy a little bit. Um, everybody loves a great heist story. There's a wish fulfillment there. You know, you think about, you know, it's the first question you ask when you walk out of a heist movie is something like Ocean's Eleven. Could I do that? Could I pull that off if I was given the opportunity? You know, do I have what it takes? And we wanted to play into that, but a little bit. But I think for me, what was exciting was doing that, have all, all of the trappings of, of a heist movie or a heist show, you know, fun, sexy, fast paced, energetic, even brash at times. Um, But to really understand the motivations uh, and the life story of the people who did it, how and why they got to where they did in their life, that they made a decision that was going to change their life forever. And that's where the heart comes in.
2: Wow. And how how did you pick which story to tell?
1: Yeah, so, there, you know, the, the cool thing about the show is the three stories come from wildly different backgrounds. All all of the characters are, are very, very different. So they play off each other really well. But it was a kind of a formula. You know, we, again, we, we needed access to the people who did it. So that was number one. There could be an amazing heist story, but if we couldn't get access or... They were still in prison and, and unable to, you know, talk about it, or their case hadn't, their trial hadn't happened, whatever. You know, that sort of excluded it. Um, so that was number one, and number two, like I said, was making sure we found stories where you could kind of root for the bad guy, you could understand them. We weren't looking for career criminals. We weren't looking for people who had committed violent crimes. Um, you know, we wanted sort of more regular people, average people like you and me, who found themselves in a situation, you know, and because of some things in their life ended up making this decision to do something crazy, Um, you know, and to now have an immigrant family from Cuba and a young woman in Las Vegas and and a family man in Kentucky. Again, they're all so different. Um, But I think it's, you know, in seeing their differences, you, we also sort of see what unites us all as people, you know, we see common themes uh, throughout all, all three stories.
0: Way back in the day, one of my first jobs was working as a researcher on the original Reenactment show Rescue 911. And I remember, and we did, we had a whole checklist of stuff that the stories had to have. And it wasn't so easy to find them. It's hard to find one where someone's not in jail. It's hard to find one where, I mean, not with rescue, most of the people weren't in jail. Let me just clarify that. But that had heart, that had people you could have access to, that was a compelling story, that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. How hard, how hard was it? I mean, we used to work our asses off trying to find stories to even pitch.
1: Mm -hmm. How
0: did, how long did it take you to find these three stories?
1: Um, You know, they came together within a few months, but I would say that it's, it it wasn't, I think the challenge is not as much finding the stories as it is really kind of building and earning the trust with the subjects because I don't want to just parachute in for a week or two you know, and tell the story and then leave or do an interview and then leave. Um, You know, I I think to really, you know, to get the vulnerability on the screen that I expect and to sort of see that that sensitivity and that comfortability on screen, it's about, yeah, like I said, building a relationship and that takes time. So, you know, in the Heather Tallchief story, it's called Sex, Magic, Money, Murder. You know, I met with her two or three times—I um, think three times—and uh, spent a couple days each time before I showed up with my crew and a camera and went out to Kentucky and spent about a week with the Kurtzinger family. Um, you know, so it's just many conversations, being vulnerable yourself, opening yourself up, you know, and and making that connection, so that you know, once the cameras are rolling, they're comfortable and. You know, really feel ready to to go there.
0: How many stories did you start on to get to the final
1: three? That's a good question. Um, we probably Big- deeply researched eight, I would guess eight. Uh, and yeah, we were probably clo- we were probably pretty close on about eight stories before we settled on these three.
0: Did any of your favorites not make the uh, cut?
1: <laughs> there are actually a couple of really good ones. Yeah, there's some good ones, but um, again, I'm, I'm really, you know, there's a reason these three did make the cut and, and I'm really, really happy about the ones that, that are in the, in the show. And, um, and the the important thing is the subjects are happy with how it turned out too. That's, that's always, you know, gives me the most anxiety more than critics or audience or anything is, you know, what are the people who were brave enough to, to sit and do an interview with us? What are they going to think? And, um, you know, so, so far they seem to be really happy.
0: Well, you're all smiley, so I'm thinking you're excited about the final product.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it.
0: Um, you do something interesting, and you touched on that a minute ago, where you tell the story from the perspective of the perpetrators,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not necessarily the victims.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think in a lot of these, the, you know, who the victims are is, is even kind of a gray area. You know, when you're taking $3 million um, from an armored car company that services casinos in Vegas, you know, is it the insurance company? Is it—is it the casino? Is it, uh, you know, there's an argument to be made that it's all of us because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it sort of affects our taxes. Is it, her co- is it her co-workers who were sort of left holding the bag, you know, and they were left in a very vulnerable position because... She, she she drove off with the money. and b- by the way, they're interviewed in, in the film as well. Um, so you know, and I think that's that's part of the I think the intrigue of the show. It's not necessarily to say they're victimless crimes, but you know I think because there's that sort of that fuzziness in between, it, it gives you a little bit more agency to be able to root for them. Um, but it's not to excuse the, It's not to excuse them either. You know, I don't think anybody's going to walk away from the show feeling inspired to go pull off a heist themselves.
0: Well, see, because I feel very inspired because I'm a, I've watched and I'm not exaggerating. And my mother did, too. Every single episode of Law and Order. Yeah. And we literally used to discuss if we could pull something off.
1: Yeah. Did you did you, you watch original, any- Were you the original Law and Order or SVU or what? Like what was your or all uh, of them?
0: All She's, of them, but the original. I mean, okay, I'm going okay. back to, like, Michael Moriarty.
1: Yeah, good. You know,
0: the literally from the very beginning, my, our old joke used to be, if you could fall asleep and Jerry Orbach was on your TV, yeah. you, you knew the world was safe. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> did What's you watch
1: it? Go ahead, Mel, I'm sorry. Did
0: you watch any of those shows?
1: For sure, yeah. I watched a lot of Law & Order. I... I, I I watched Law and Order a lot with my dad, and then I, I had a big SVU phase. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, then then when you know, when I cut the cord and, and got rid of cable, I, I kind of slowed down on that front a little bit. But um, yeah, it which, still has a warm spot in my heart.
0: Yeah, which is your favorite? Which is your favorite true crime shows? My mom became addicted to Forensic Files. Uh, like that's, it became, that's it, became cool. it became an too. issue. So Sabrina, it became a real issue.
1: <laughs> Forensic files, cold case, fi- cold case files. I like, you know, unsolved mysteries, and Netflix just did the reboot too, uh, which is super fun. Um, and then, you know, as we mentioned before, some of the the newer ones are really fun. There's actually a, another Netflix uh, feature doc. It's uh, you could call it true crime though, called The Legend of Cocaine Island, which I think kind of plays in a similar space. It's sort of the a little bit lighter. A little bit more fun. You can kind of root for root for the bad guy a little bit um, on that one too. So that was a that was a bit of inspiration for us.
0: Do you think you could pull off the perfect crime?
1: <laughs> I wouldn't try. I've got a two year old now. I like my life. I'm not <laughs> right trying to go on, to jail.
2: Right on. Right on. I think you have to think from that perspective. It's so funny because you 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 hear about these stories and people doing crimes and stuff. The people that got caught, your subjects. Mm-hmm. The mistakes that they made are they do they seem obvious to you now knowing the outcomes of those stories? Got
1: you, got you. Um, uh, I will say this: I think the thing that was the most surprising to me was what happens after the crime, because a lot of the thought on most of the movies is everything, all of the planning, all of the execution, and the getaway, right? And those are, that's a, obviously a huge part of our series. But there's one story, the, the Sex, Magic, Money, Murder story, I don't want without spoiling too much, she actually does get away with it. She and her accomplice, Roberto Solis, they get away with the crime. Like, they don't get caught. Um, but, but even in her freedom, even as she's living on the run, she doesn't ever really feel free. It's this sort of this heavy burden that she has to carry of living this double life you know, pretending to be somebody that she's not living under an assumed name. And then they have a son together and her son doesn't even know her real name. She's wow. lost touch with her family, with her friends. She can't call her dad. She can't call her brothers and sisters. Her son's growing up without even knowing that he has a family, you know, and and ultimately, you, you know, that you see in the show how how much of a toll that takes on her, you know? And I think that's sort of the part that, that was, that was something I, I hadn't really considered before I started making the show. But of course there are some sort of boneheaded mistakes along the way where you're just like, ah, come on, man, all you had to do is lay low. And, uh, and here you are flashing that money, you know? So there are, there are some of those too.
0: That's so what I was going to ask is how much does greed, uh, play a part and you're like, no, 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 just leave it. You got away with it. Don't go back for more. Yeah.
1: Don't be cocky. Just, just walk away. Particularly the Miami story. Um, it's called the money plane. Uh, you know, that was sort of the one rule after, you know, they steal $7.4 million from a warehouse in Miami, very similar to the, the heist that inspired Goodfellas, right. you know, the, the famous Henry Hill Lufthansa heist. It's a very similar kind of story. Um, and it was this crew of guys and, you know, and they said, we just have to lay low. We can't flash this money around. And, um, and most of them do, you know, they take it seriously, except for, you know, the one guy, Jeffrey, he's out at the strip club, he's bought, he's wearing two Rolexes at a time, you know, and, and everybody's like, where's Jeffrey getting this money from, you know, and so he's all of a sudden raising red flags, and then he gets kidnapped. Um, and, and that's where the story <laughs> takes a left turn that you are just not expecting. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely some of those moments w- as you watch it play out where you just can't really believe, <laughs> believe what you're seeing and what, what they're doing.
2: It, it, all of this is just, you know, so it's so much information, but along with the greed, do you think that a lot of the, uh, subjects involved get caught up in the fame and all the power, um, or is it just the thrill of, hey, let me see if I can get away with this? I mean, like, what is? walk us through some of, of that dynamic.
1: Well, you mentioned um, power, you know, and I think that's what's really interesting about the show is that it does sort of explore some of these larger themes. You know, you have themes of greed and power and addiction, uh, immigration. There's a, a, a lot of themes that, that the show sort of takes a deeper look at, Um, the, the dad in Kentucky, you know, he sort of had, he was, he was part of this elite traveling men's softball league, believe it or not. Like he would travel all over the country competing in these softball tournaments. And, and he was really good. He was winning MVP. He had all these trophies and he felt like the man, he had this sense of power. And when his family sort of started growing, his wife was like, look, family or softball, like, you, you know, we, we need dad at home. And of course he picked his family and, you know, by all accounts, he's a wonderful dad. I've spent time with him and his kids. And he really is. I mean, they love him so much. It's really, really sweet. Um, But there was something missing in his life. You know, that sense of being the man, that power that he had when he was, you know, had, you know, he was crushing home runs every weekend was gone and he needed something to, to fill it. And all of a sudden, you know, he's working at Buffalo trace, he, you know, people, it was the culture, you know, you steal a bottle here and there. It's not even really considered theft. You just kind of take it home at the end of your shift. He was doing that. And, you know, they have some very expensive, rare bottles of bourbon, um, particularly Pappy Van Winkle. So all of a sudden, his friends would be like, oh, I'll buy one of those. You know, it's, that's a thousand bucks right there. And, uh, and then he would, you know, oh, man, that's, that's some easy sort of passive money that I can make. And then all of a sudden, you know, before he knows it, he's sort of got a network of people helping him move uh, barrels. They're taking barrels off the property and they're selling barrels at a time. And he feels like the man again. His phone is blowing up. People are looking at him as the guy. And, um, you know, he said, I felt like a mini Amazon, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and so, so it's, it's really sort of interesting to see, um, you know, how, how power does corrupt corrupt people, you know, and, and how it, it affects, you know, he, then w- what's at stake for him, his entire family, his entire livelihood, but he's, he just is craving that feeling that he didn't have anymore.
2: It
0: always cracks me up because everybody has a guy for everything. Yeah, And you never really think that there is actually someone who is the guy,
1: <laughs> especially the bourbon guy, like yeah, something so you, that you can go buy at your local supermarket.
0: Right. Well, there's the bourbon guy. Then everyone has a watch guy. You know, everybody's got a jewelry guy. That's you know, my
1: father in law. My father in law sells watches, so there you go. There you go. Everyone's got. <laughs> I got a
0: watch guy. You yeah. need it. I got it. Um, this is not your first rodeo. You have worked on so many um, powerful documentaries and shows and non. I mean, I guess documentary is a nonfiction film. Mm-hmm. Which was the most difficult
1: for you? Oh man, it, they're all s- s- very challenging in their own way. I mean, you know, I think you kind of really just have to live and breathe making documentaries because, yeah, they're not easy. Um, th- this one had its own challenges, um, but I mean, in a different way, maybe my film "The Price of Free," uh, because I, you know, I had to live in in India for six months making that that film, and we were telling the story of. of Uh, Children who had just been rescued from slavery, and we were going undercover trying to find another child who'd been trafficked. So you know there there was a lot of wearing hidden cameras, trying to infiltrate this uh, child trafficking network. You know, um, having to sit in a in a car for hours and hours at a time, being way out in the middle of nowhere um, with very little resource. you know and it's such a different story such a different filmmaking process than heist so again i think you know the the challenge of that versus the, you know the the challenges here which were compounded by covid making anything during the covid era i think anybody who's done it now can can talk about how challenging that is and it really was i mean it was it was tough but um but you know you always find a way there's always an answer there's always a solution you just kind of stay true to to what's in your heart. So that sort of that guiding light, that larger vision and know that in the end, you know, you're not going to let something out in the world that you, that you don't love, that you're not proud of. And, um, ultimately that, you know, as long as you, you, you stick with that, then, then you'll, you'll have, you'll have, you know, a work that, that you're proud to share.
0: You know, it's funny. Cause you look at your body of work and, um, heist is really the lightest topic you've done.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of social justice work in there, um, and I think that you know a lot of telling these stories is to really sort of try and challenge the audience to think a little bit more carefully about the world around them. You know, to to find connection with the characters in, in the material. And um, even though Heist is lighter, I still carry that ethos here. You know, I'm telling introspective um nuanced stories about the human condition. And and again, we talked about some of those larger themes at play. And I think that you know you're gonna come out of this hopefully, you know, um feeling like you had a good time, but also a little more enriched.
0: You have an interesting story into how you got started and some of your big breaks. So you were the explain to me, explain to people what you did, what is participant media and what you did and sort of how you got there. Cause that really launched you into a whole different level.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So participants, uh, a filmmaking company that was started by Jeff Skoll, um, who was the first president of eBay. And so he made a small fortune, um, obviously eBay and and said, I want to do good in the world. You know, what can I, what can I do with this money? And Um, he, he said, you know, I, want to make entertainment that inspires and compels social change. That was his sort of mission statement in starting participant. And so, um, he did, it was participant media and now they're, they're just called participant and they're making, continuing to just make amazing content. Um, but I started as an intern there when I was a a senior at Chapman, um, back in probably 2008 or 2009. And, um, you know, and I got hired right out of school and I was like their first in-house filmmaker. So it started by sort of cutting like marketing trailers and sizzles. Um, And then, you know, it sort of grew and grew from there. They started an an agency. So they were making content for Starbucks and American Express and different brands. And so, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I was, Sort of lucky enough to to be in a position to be you know writing and directing and producing um a lot of this content and really kind of growing as as a filmmaker and and with people who i whom i loved at that that company um, and i met uh, another director named davis guggenheim who yeah. um you know made an inconvenient truth and he was coming off of his film waiting for superman I was making a lot of the the content that was going online to support the film. And I think he was just kind of impressed. He was like, this is actually really good stuff, you know, and um, you know, who's making it. So we met and he, he became a, you know, my mentor and and close friend and ally. And I, when I was sort of ready to leave participant um, he sort of brought me in and took me under his wing in a way and just, you know, gave me a a ton of opportunity to learn and grow and um, you know, really find my voice as a filmmaker. It was sort of like a, give him a hard time that I felt like I was in film school in like the best possible way working, working for him. Cause he's just such a master storyteller. And, um, so, you know, and, and then ultimately he, uh, produced, uh, the price of free, um, and we got to make that film with participants. So it all kind of came full circle there.
0: But I love the fact that you started as an intern.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Started as an intern. I grew up in LA, but I don't, I, don't, I didn't have any industry connections, you know, and I, I actually just kind of fell into filmmaking because I, lo- I played basketball my whole life. That was my passion. And then I blew out my knee and, you know, kind of started hanging out with different friends, a little bit more artistic crowd. And um, me and my buddy just, uh, my buddy and I just picked up a camera, you know, and just started making short films. We made a documentary about Venice Beach when we were 16 and, you know, and it just kind of kinda went from there. And, um, you know, and so... When I found Participant, yeah, it just gave me that home to see, you know, it was cool because they were making movies and documentaries and I got to see that side of it, but I was also able to create as well. And I feel like that's very rare. You know, you're either finding a, a content creation company or you're finding a development, you know, production company, but you're not able to do both. And so I got, I got really lucky there.
0: Well, and also, you know, I, you know, we always laugh. I was an intern at entertainment tonight. hmm. You know, a lot of us actually came out of that tape vault. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, you have a two-year-old now. I know with my son, I'm always impressing upon him the importance of internships.
1: Oh, for sure. For sure.
0: That you know, you know, that you you learn when it's hands-on.
1: Yeah. And that's the other thing, too. As a director, you know, I... It was hard to know sort of where to put my focus because directing, I sort of feel like you have to have an understanding of of everything, of yes. every department. And so I, and even like market, like I took a marketing internship at one point because I wanted to understand that side of the business. And in school, I only really took one directing class and one editing class, but I, because I, again, like I felt. I didn't feel like I was ready to come out of school and just be a director, start making movies or, or shows at this level. Some people do. It's just very, very rare. And I was, I just was not ready as a storyteller. But so I was taking writing classes. I was taking cinematography classes, producing classes. I was just kind of all over the board. And I remember my dad being like, you got to pick a focus. Like, what are you doing? You know?" And, and, and I was like, no, 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 I just feel like I have to learn everything. Um, and, and ultimately, and, it and, your par- is,
0: and at that point, your parents look at each other and go, "Oh God, he's still on our payroll." <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. He was, and my dad's like, you know, he was—he's very—he was very supportive, but he's also very Type A. He's like a business—he's a businessman and an entrepreneur. Like, the creative industry is not one that. He was familiar with, and he was like, "You're picking the hardest industry to break into. You don't have a focus. Like, what? You know, what are you doing? You know?" He was like, "Maybe it's time to start thinking about a business minor." Um, <laughs> and I was like, "Dad, if I'm going to do this, I have to be all in." You know, and um, I am I'm very grateful that he, you know, as much as he kind of pressed me and pushed me, he was he was uh, very 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 supportive. He was he was parenting exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I always
0: joke that my son is getting what we refer to now as a Netflix degree,
1: <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> which which really means you really don't know what you want to do. Yeah. Um.
1: Yeah.
0: I, what are you work? What What's next?
1: Um. Yeah. So I've, I'm. Ch- I'm. You know. We're always chasing stories. You're either like immersed in the one you're telling or immersed in the one you're going to tell next, and or both. And uh, and I've got several that that I'm in the midst of sort of developing right now that I'm really really excited about. Um I can't talk about them yet. Um, you know, because I wanna see, you know, but yeah, but 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 there's there's some good ones that I think will be coming soon. And um in the meantime I'm uh editing on the Magic Johnson documentary. So oh, again like cool. somebody who grew up loving basketball from Los Angeles, that's kind of a, a dream opportunity. Very, very cool. Yeah.
0: Remind everyone where we can all watch the heist.
1: So it's just called heist. Just heist. heist. It's all good. It drops tomorrow on Netflix. Which is July 14th. July. Yes. July 14th on Netflix.
0: It's it's dropping on Bastille
1: Day. Yes, exactly.
0: Um, You are lovely. I can't wait to watch. Uh, being a true crime addict. We want to have you back to talk about all of your films every time you have one coming absolutely. out. absolutely, You've got uh, new fans here.
1: I would thank be honored. Sabrina, Melissa, thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Cheers.